Some of your children understand the principle of separation. There was a kid that I grew up with that took separation to a whole new level. And this was actually the first time that I'd ever seen separation play out. I'd never recognized it because in my home, there was no such thing as separation. It didn't happen. But I saw this kid take a piece of bread and he covered it with peanut butter. And then he got a clean knife and he took another piece of bread and he covered it with jelly. And then he ate the peanut butter half and he ate the jelly half. <laughs> because he did not like his food to touch. Now, I just stood in amazement and I did not tell him that that once it cleared the taste buds, it was all going to combine together anyway. But that was his point, was once it clears the taste buds, he doesn't care if it combines or not. Uh, once it clears his visual eyesight, he doesn't care if it touches or not. But prior to that, the two shall not meet, was his, was his mindset. I couldn't help but think about him this morning. Uh, as we continue our journey through 2 Corinthians, we ended the book of, we ended in November looking at this book, and we kind of took a little Christmas journey, and now we're back in the new year, and we're, we're back to our journey through 2 Corinthians. Uh, when we were in 2 Corinthians, the last time we were together, we were looking at verses 3 through 13 in 2 Corinthians 6. And in 2 Corinthians 6, in that passage, Paul has been sharing with us his ministry and what was going on in his ministry. And there were many who were in Corinth who were rejecting his ministry. They were rejecting him. And they did not see eye to eye with Paul. And they were stepping away from him. And Paul shares with them in that section that, hey, I've given you my heart. I've showed you my heart. You know everything about me. And even though these false prophets and these false leaders are coming in and sharing other things with me. You've seen my heart. And he shared with them there in verse 13 of 2 Corinthians 6, in return I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. So he shared with them and he told them that love me, open your heart and love me. That's what his point was. Now, Paul moves from this and he begins to talk about this idea of separation from the world. Many of these false teachers and, and religious leaders were in the world and they were seeking to leave the people, lead the people of Corinth away from the gospel message. And so Paul stops right here in his message and he speaks to them about being separated from the world. Now look at 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. He says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and I will walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst, be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. 
and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Verse 1 of chapter 7 is attached to this as well. And it says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Now, as we dive into this passage this morning, there are two headings that we're going to use to kind of lead us through. The first thing we see is the need for separation. And the second thing we see is the need for sanctification. Now, before we dive into this this morning, let's just ask God's anointing on his word this morning and allow us to understand. Father, we are grateful for this morning, grateful for the chance just to gather around this morning and have your word open on our laps. Grateful that we're able to worship you in song. And now, Lord, as we worship you in the hearing of your word, I pray you would speak to our hearts this morning. Lord, there are so many things that we could have been doing today, but we have gathered here this morning to hear from you. And I pray, Lord, we would do just that, hear from you. Lord, let us not hear the ramblings of some man, but let us hear the truth of your word this morning. So speak to our hearts. Let our hearts open up and drink in what you have for us. And I pray you would feed and nourish our souls this morning. We pray all of these things in your son's name. Amen. Now, as we begin this morning, the first thing we want to see is the need for separation. Look at verses 14 through 16 here with me. Verse 14 says this, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, Paul uses a word picture here, and he speaks of a yoke. Uh, a yoke is used to connect two animals together. And that yoke would be connected to a plow or, or to a wagon, something that both of the animals could pull together. And, and both animals would bear the burden of whatever they were yoked to, and they would bear that burden together, and they would move or pull that burden, whatever it may be, they would go together. It's an important thing to note that when two animals are yoked together, it's important that those two yoked animals are not mismatched animals. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 22 shares this, You shall not plow with an ox, and a donkey together. Now, as you think about this, an ox and a donkey are two mismatched animals. They are different sizes. They have different strengths. They have a different gait. They walk at different speeds. So to yoke a donkey and an oxen together would be more work than it would be worth. I was reading this week and I read about someone who was in the Middle East on vacation and they were driving down the road and they saw someone with a camel and a donkey yoked together. Yeah, I see that too. Uh, it said the camel was walking very slowly and the poor little donkey was running almost at full tilt. And the guy who was leading both of them or using both of these animals was using a ton of energy trying to keep the donkey to keep up. And it was more work than it was worth. There was a battle that was going on there that didn't need to be going on because 
they decided to yoke together these two mismatched animals. Now, as we think about this, and we think about the context of this passage, the people of Corinth were hindered in their love for Paul. The rival suitors, if you will, that were seeking the love of the people of Corinth were unbelievers. They did not believe the gospel message. They did not believe that Paul was who he claimed to be. And so they were trying to draw the people of Corinth away from the message and from the person that Paul was and that Paul was sharing. And Paul saw these false teachers and he saw these false prophets as unbelievers. And these people were, were trying to appease Paul and they were trying to appease the other leaders. And Paul is looking at this and he sees this as this being believers and unbelievers being mismatched, being unequally yoked. The people of Corinth had been saved out of that pagan society. They had been saved out of that pagan religion. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Paul said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. They were now new creatures in Christ. Why would they desire to go back to the old way of life? Why would they desire to be yoked with unbelievers? Because Christ had given his life to free them from that yoke so that they could now be yoked with Christ. Why would they be yoked with Christ and also try to be yoked with the world, with unbelievers? Paul says, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Paul's instruction is simple. Believers and unbelievers are not to be yoked together. They don't walk at the same gate. They don't walk to the beat of the same drummer. They don't walk with the same goal in mind. Why be yoked with unbelievers? These religious unbelievers would lead and were leading the believers astray. And a believer can only be rightly yoked when a believer is yoked to Christ. Amos 3.3 says this, Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? As a follower of Christ, as a believer in Christ, they have agreed to meet with Christ. When Christ makes us new creatures, when Christ makes us new creations, when Christ gives us a heart change, it's impossible for us to go back and be yoked to the old way again. Now, Paul asks five rhetorical questions here. And he asks these rhetorical questions to drive home a point. And as we look at the way that he illustrates this, he shows us how wide this gap really is between believers, those following Christ, and unbelievers, those who aren't following Christ, who aren't desiring to walk with Christ. 
Now, verse 14 continues, and it says, For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Now, partnership is the thought of, of sharing together something, a, a relationship of, of shared interests, a relationship of shared activities. And righteousness and lawlessness are at the end of the spectrum. When we think about lawlessness, we, we put it over here on this side in a category. And then when we think about righteousness, we put it in the opposite category. No matter where we move the lawlessness, the righteousness moves that far away. Because they are opposites of the spectrum. And so Paul says, look at this spectrum. What in the world do they share? And really the answer, the only answer that we have is absolutely, positively nothing. I mean, that's what the rhetorical question is. Now notice what he says next in verse 14. Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Now this word for fellowship means to experience or have something in common. When we fellowship together, we experience things together, we have something in common. Paul's question is, what fellowship has light with darkness? Now, when we think about light and we think about darkness, we put them on the same spectrum, don't we? Light at one end, darkness on the other end. But you know that darkness is defined as the absence of light. That is what darkness is, is simply the absence of light. When you go to physics and you look at all of the physics and put everything together, darkness is the absence of light. What happens the moment that you introduce light to darkness? Darkness disappears, doesn't it? Light takes over. And it's not even a question. It's not even a battle. Light drives away darkness because darkness is the op is the uh, darkness is the absence of light. And Paul says, "What fellowship does darkness have with light?" Again, we have to say absolutely positively nothing, because where there is light, there is no darkness. Where there is light, there is no darkness. They have nothing in common. Verse 15 says, What accord has Christ with Belial? The NIV says, What harmony do these two have? This thought of harmony or this thought of an accord uh, is not a car. It is the thought of being in unison with one another. Belial is defined as wickedness, and, and Belial is an, is an ancient word that's often used as a reference for Satan. Think about this. Christ at one end of the spectrum, fully righteous, fully without sin. And then you think about wickedness at the, at the other end, some, something vile, something lawless, Satan himself. Complete opposites. Complete opposites. They have nothing in harmony. There's 
Nothing of accord between Christ and Satan. Jesus is the truth, while Satan is the father of lies. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 8, 44, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus came into this world to give life. Satan seeks to steal and to kill and to destroy. John 10, 9 through 11, Jesus said, I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. There is no accord between Jesus and Satan. There is no agreement. There's no harmony between those two. Verse 15 continues and he says, Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Uh, a portion is simply a share. When you get a portion of something, you get a share of something. What does a believer share with an unbeliever? A believer has, has placed his faith in Christ. He recognizes Jesus Christ as who he claims to be. He recognizes that salvation comes from Christ and Christ alone. Plus nothing, minus nothing. An unbeliever doesn't believe that. An unbeliever says, you know what? There's lots of ways to come into a right standing with God. I don't need Jesus. I've got other things. I can, I can do it my own way. What is the portion of agreement? What is the portion of, of sharing there? The believer is convinced and he's placed his faith in Christ. The unbeliever is not convinced. He has not placed his faith in Christ. Verse 16 says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? The temple of God is, is seen as the place where the very presence of God rests. Idols are nothing more than false gods. They are man-made. Idols are anything that takes the rightful place of God. They are not God. They are not the one true God. They are figments of man's imagination. They are pursuits that man pursues other than the one true God. When his efforts are, are placed in pursuit of that rather than in pursuit of the one true God, it becomes an idol. In the Old Testament, when Israel would drift away from God, they would often carry idols into the temple of God and begin to worship those false idols. They didn't worship the one true God. They worshiped other idols instead of the one true God. God would send discipline upon them and they would turn back to the one true God. But for that period of time, they would worship those idols. How can that be? There's, there's no agreement between the two. Paul makes a declaration 
regarding the temple of God. This is in 1 Corinthians 3.16 that Paul makes this declaration. He says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? What place does idol worship have in the temple of God? And Paul shares that you are the temple of God. And he states it here again in verse 16, for we are the temple of the living God. Think about this for a moment. When we trust Christ as Lord and Savior, when we believe, the Holy Spirit indwells us, and we as individuals become a temple of the living God. We become a temple of the living God. I remember when I was in Bible school, and every time I read this, I think about this. We were in Bible school, and we were learning about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit does. And we learned that the moment that we trust Christ, the Holy Spirit moves within us, and the presence of God, the very presence of God is with us, and our body becomes a temple of God. And I remember when our professor was sharing that, and I remember I was sitting by a lady and in our class, and I was 27, 28, so I had kind of been through life a little bit, but here she was, 18 years old, and she's sitting in this class. And this teacher says, where and what have you done with the temple of God? And she, out loud, in this moment as she's feeling convicted, she says, oh, man, I wish I would have thought of that sooner. Because there were some things that she did with the temple of God that she would like to take back. Paul says, you are the temple of God. But he also says here in verse 16, we are the temple of God. We as individuals are the temple of God. But we as a group, when we come together, we are the temple of the living God. Why? How is it possible to have fellowship with unbelievers when we are the temple of the living God? Some of these false practices, some of these Corinthian practices were working their way into the church. And those unbelieving pagan practices were being practiced in the temple of God. And Paul's question is, how can this be? How can there be an agreement between the temple of God and unbelievers and idols? It's amazing how even today we see that taking place in Christianity where things of this world where pagan practices pagan behaviors are brought into the church and it's seen as okay because we want to be more modern because we want to be more accepting Paul says what agreement is the temple of God 
with these idols. Verse 16 says, As God said, I will make my dwelling among them, and I will walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Paul is quoting the Old Testament here as he shares this. Exodus chapter 6 verse 7, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. There's several other places in the Old Testament where this terminology is used, where Israel is in bondage to sin or in Babylon under, under, the, uh, under that realm of darkness. And the prophet comes and tells them that they need to turn to the one true God. And if the people would turn to the one true God, he would be their God. They would know that he's the Lord and, and they would be his people. But they've got to turn to the one true God. And this is what Paul says here, is I'll make my dwelling among them and walk among them and be with them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And he's applying this to the people of Corinth. If they would turn to God, they would be his people and he would be their God. Their needs to be separation. There needs to be a turning to God. There needs to be that. But as we think about this separation, there also needs to be sanctification. Look at verse 17. It says, therefore, and you guys love that word, right? <laughs> therefore, because all that he's just laid out, he's just He's just given us all of these questions and he's given us these promises and he's laid out all of this stuff. And now he says, because of all of those things, this mindset that we should have needs to be thus. He has, he has made his point. He's made his argument. And because of that, go out from their midst. Be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Now, a saint is one who has been called by God. A saint is one who's been called by God and been separated by God from the world. Because there is no agreement between a saint and the world. So God has separated them unto himself. Now, some people look at this and, and think that this means that in order for us to be truly separated from, from the world, in order for us to truly be sanctified unto God, we need to build communes and we need to just live among ourselves, uh, wear camel skin clothing and sing kumbaya, shave our heads. That's what some people believe. But the rest of Scripture says no. Uh, we are told even in 2 Corinthians that we're ambassadors. We're to represent God to the rest of the world. We're not to withdraw and just hang out by ourselves and, and eat s'mores. We are to be and to proclaim Jesus Christ 
to others. That is the ministry that we've been called to. Paul is commanding the believers in Corinth to separate themselves from the corruption, from the adulterous, uh, from the, the idolatry, from all of those practices that are going on in Corinth, the original city of sin. He says, be separate from that. Uh, be separate from that and sanctify yourself to the Lord. Leave that behind. Don't just hang out, but draw near to God. That's, that's the sanctification that needs to happen. We need to be separate and we need to be connected. We need to be with God, drawing near to Him. Now notice what it says in verse 17. Then I will welcome you. I will be a father to you. You shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. This separation from evil and this sanctification unto God. That is what we need to do. And that is the will of God. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 For this is the will of God. Your sanctification. Your sanctification. Is there a better reason for us to separate ourselves from the world and connect ourselves with God, desiring to walk in obedience with Him. How many of you would like to know what the will of God is for your life? All right, three of them. Praise God. The will of God is your sanctification. In order for us to enjoy close fellowship with God, there has to be personal holiness. There has to be a desire to walk closely with God. I was visiting with someone yesterday. They live in a different country. And they shared with me that one of the things that amazes them uh, in America is how we are a country of rules and compared to their country for the most part we live by our rules he said in his country there are rules but they really don't mean anything just kind of do what you want to do just kind of that's how life is just just kind of there he said, that's kind of the way it is in the country, but that's not the way it was in my house. He said, Dad would give us instructions. Those instructions were the law. And those instructions had to be followed. If there was peace in the home, they had to be followed. As we think about a relationship with God, if we want to walk in fellowship with God, if we want to walk in close intimacy with God, we must walk in obedience. We must practice holiness. 1 John 1, 6-7 says this, 
If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. We do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from sin. You see that? When I'm in a right connection here, then I'm going to be in a right connection here. My relationship with here affects my relationship here. When couples come to me and they're seeking marital counseling, one of the first questions I ask is, how's your walk with Christ? I'm not concerned about your wife, I'm not concerned about your husband. How's your walk with Christ? Most of the time, that's where the breakdown is at. The breakdown is not here. The breakdown is here. When we want fellowship, when we want fellowship here, we need to make sure that we have fellowship here. The closer my fellowship is here, the better my fellowship is going to be here. When I'm pursuing holiness here, it's going to help my relationship with other believers here. It's not going to help my relationship with unbelievers, but it's going to help my relationship with believers. Verse 7, or chapter 7, verse 1, sorry. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Since we have these promises, and I know if you have a different translation than the English Standard Version, it says, therefore. Therefore. Since. I just shared all that stuff with you. Since all of those things were shared, and we want the very presence of God to be with us. Since that is the case, personal holiness is needed to enjoy the presence of God. Now, pers personal holiness doesn't earn that. It doesn't earn our salvation. Salvation is only through Christ and faith in Christ. What personal obedience does is draw us into that close fellowship with God, that intimate relationship with God. You know how it is in your own home, and it was in my home growing up as well. I had a deep respect for my dad. But I knew when I was disobedient that there was going to be a price to be paid. <laughs> and until that price was paid, there was friction between the two of us. And once restitution was made and restoration was made, then things were okay between my dad and I again. But as long as that was hanging over my head, there was a break in our relationship. When we have sin in our life, there's a break in our relationship with God. We don't lose our salvation, but there's a break. This piece of paper is very thin, but even with this thin piece of paper, when I put it between me and the light, it casts a shadow on my face. God is without sin. He's pure light. But when sin comes into my life, there's darkness that creeps in. 
doesn't change my relationship with God. I'm still saved. I'm still a child of God. But there's a shadow. There's something between me and my relationship with God. This is why I need to be in pursuit of holiness. This is why I need to be in pursuit of a close relationship with God so that I can have that fellowship. I can have that fellowship with God. Since we have these promises, let us step away from every defilement. Being separate from the world is more than just keeping our distance from sinful world. It's impossible for us to fully withdraw from the influences of the world. But we can resist the temptation to take part in the sin that's in the world around us. Let us be separate. Let us be holy. Let us be in the pursuit of holiness. Always seeking to draw nearer to God. It says here in the last part of of the of verse one here, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. As we draw near to God, as we walk in reverence before God, that produces in us a desire for obedience. The closer we get to God, the greater our desire is to walk in obedience. But when I have a shadow between me and God, what's one more shadow? What's one more thing? Doesn't bother me because the shadow's already there. But when I'm drawing near to God and my desire is to walk in that relationship with God, the closer I get to God, the brighter the light is with God, the more I desire to walk closer with God. And that reverence produces holiness, produces a desire to walk in obedience. When we recognize, when we have that desire, and we recognize that sin comes in our lives, our desire is to move away from that as quick as possible, to get back in that light, to walk in that fellowship again. We have to be careful because it can produce legalism. Our do's and don'ts kind of become important things. We need to make sure that our desire is not the do's and don'ts, but that our desire is the pure light, to walk in that pure light. So what do we have? We see this need for separation, but more importantly, we see this need for sanctification. What do we take home from this? I think, I think the biggest question that we have to ask ourselves is what is our association with the world? What is our association with the world? As followers of Christ, we are new creatures in Christ. We've been brought out of this world. We've been set, taken out of the realm of darkness, and we've been placed in the kingdom of light. Sometimes, <clears throat> we can be tempted to continue that association. You know, we can desire to walk close to the darkness and say, hey, you know what, I, 
have fire insurance, I'm okay. I'll just, just walk right here and it won't be bad. That should not be our desire. Our desire should be to walk as closely with God as we can and, and not allow that association with the world to tempt us because, because of our sin nature, that association drags us in. So our desire should be to walk on the opposite side. We are not called as ambassadors to blend in. We are not called as ambassadors to blend in. We are called to be separate. We are called to walk differently. We are called to behave differently. Are we doing that? Are we doing that or do we find ourselves yoked with unbelievers? We cannot serve two masters. No matter how hard we try, no matter how good we think we are at the game, we cannot serve two masters. It's up to us to decide. Am I going to live separated, sanctified, or am I going to try to serve two masters?